I'm Rick Ralph, and thanks for listening to my podcast series, Talking Garbology, Waste and Recycling Unwrapped. In my episodes, I'll be talking with the industry leaders, the innovators, and the companies that operate both within and across the waste management, recycling, and secondary resource recovery industry. We'll unwrap for you the facts and the stories of how the industry operates, what it's doing in managing waste, how it recovers and reprocesses secondary materials, and generally explore all things waste and recycling related. Wherever you may be listening across the world, I trust you find these conversations interesting and informative. Thanks for listening and please enjoy this podcast. Six months ago, I sat down with uh, Assistant Minister for Waste Recycling and Reduction, Minister Trevor Evans. I thought it was topical that uh, six months in, and pretty well halfway through Australia's uh, having this massive reform in waste policy and uh, uh, legislation that we might catch up with, Minister, and um, have a bit of a chat to see where we've landed um, now halfway through and where we're headed and some of the opportunities and challenges. So, Minister, welcome to my podcast. Thanks, Rick. It's good to be back. And uh, if I may, I might call you as you are keeping it informal, Trevor, so from here on. Please. Um, Trevor, uh, before we get into it, I gave you some homework last time. <laughs> and uh, the homework was uh, because you really were the minister that gets out and about everywhere. I was just wondering, is it a gold star or is it detention you're going to get and telling me how many waste and recycling facilities you visited and what's the data look like, mate? I knew you were going to ask this question, Rick. So I do have up to the second uh, advice for you. So as of uh, Friday afternoon when I visited a plastics processing plant, I've now officially done 94 site visits, which of course started off focused on MRFs and uh, landfills and so on, but more recently has um, started to branch out into some of the uh, plastics supply chain and the facilities there, um, a lot of C&D along the way and a few organics facilities as well. That's impressive. I mean, that really is impressive. I've, I've been in the game now for nearly 40 years and I don't think I've ever... Uh, had that sort of response from any, any uh, member of elected member of parliament. So congratulations. Well, thank you. I, I should let you know the other um, piece of information I have just to hand as well, uh, which is my long-suffering diary manager, Dan, um, also started to try to tally up how many um, meetings and Zoom conferences uh, I'd had with industry stakeholders. We stopped counting at 1,000 and Dan asked for permission to go back to uh, his normal day job and keep doing that. So uh, Goodness co- gracious co- COVID might have slowed us down a little bit over the course of 2020, but it's there's been a lot of engagement and, and uh, I guess something I said when we spoke six months ago was how heavily the federal government was going to rely on the expertise that could be brought to the table from... Uh, people in industry and product experts, and so it's been necessary uh, for us to have that level of engagement. I think more importantly, it, it shows that uh, when you when people are talking to you, you're right across your portfolio. You fundamentally understand the principles, and uh, uh, you know basically see through um, the crystal ball to some degree, but also understand what really is happening in the market. And that's so important when you're just finding legislation. There's certainly been a lot to learn and I think there's uh, a lot more to learn as well mm. as we 
uh, go to rolling out the uh, actions that we announced at the start of this month in the National Plastics Plan, for instance. Uh, there's a lot of very detailed work that we have to do with some sectors there. And so every day is a learning one. And uh, my approach will continue to be to try to put the experts and industry in the box seat in terms of getting great outcomes. I've got a long, long list of things that I want to get done. And uh, while I've ticked a few of them off, uh, the pace of reform will not slow down. So here's that what a perfect segue. Your observations of where we've come and where we're going. Um, do you do you think we're on track? Broadly, yes. Uh, and uh, I say that you know, knowing full well how ambitious a lot of the national targets that governments have set ourselves, plural, uh, in the national waste policy and the action plan that sits under it. I think what I'm um, most pleased about is that, broadly speaking, we have kept the reform agenda and the actions on track even over the last 12 months or so when, you know, the country and the world in, indeed have been so distracted by, you know, once in a century um, economic and, and health crisis. Mm. So despite all of that, uh, we have continued to deliver the actions under the National Waste Policy Action Plan broadly along the timelines that we originally envisaged. There's still a lot of work to go uh, until many of those targets are met over the next, uh, you know, um, five, six, seven, eight, nine years. Um, but uh, I don't think that we've missed the opportunity that the last 12 months has provided. And, and I think so long as we continue the, the focus that we have and we continue to drill down on where we see things that uh, might be slipping in terms of their progress towards long-term targets and we can keep putting in place strategic interventions along the way, mm. uh, I think we're going to go very, very close to achieving all of those very ambitious targets. I think even with the the dramas we've had, the, the opportunity has presented itself with the Zoom conferences and, and the online meetings, et cetera. It's actually enables us to focus and to get into it rather than, you know, get caught up in day-to-day -day activities, I would suggest. I think that's definitely true. I think if we were looking for silver linings uh, from everything that COVID has thrown our way, there have been a couple of fundamental changes to the way that we do business. Uh, you know, if I, if I could put it this way, uh, as the federal government did some engagement, for instance, in the lead up to announcing the National Plastics Plan at mm. the start of at the start of March. Uh, ordinarily, a few years ago, a lot of uh, stakeholders would have felt quite disrespected if I couldn't have gotten around to visit them in their respective, uh, you know, state capitals and headquarters. Yeah, uh, and over the last twelve months, there was a real willingness to do a lot of that engagement and consultation via video conference or, or, or teleconference. And as a consequence of that, I could bank entire days of my life having quick twenty or forty-minute phone conversations with stakeholders, one after the other, and not losing any time to travel in between. And what that meant is that I was able to touch base with some of those stakeholders more than I would have been otherwise at, mm. at, at more points in the journey, uh, which meant that we could be slightly more ambitious and achieve a few extra things um, in that national plastics plan that might not have got across the line otherwise. Starting at the beginning, we've uh, introduced the bands. Um, we've got the glass now um, in place. Have we, and it's far too early, I would suggest, to see any, any shifts or trends, etc. I guess more importantly, where to with these bans? And have you seen any evidence of early movers or people taking advantage more in the line looking down the track? Because obviously this is going to take place over the next 18 months, two years, three years. We've got early movers jumping in, do you think? Uh, look, we, we do. Uh, if I could uh, point out that the first rules pertaining to glass 
did quite deliberately attach themselves to uh, the waste exports, which were of the smallest quantities uh, and the, probably the least significant quantities when you compare it to the total waste streams uh, of the country. Mm. Um, so glass was, in a way, perfectly suited to be the first set of rules that we could implement and learn from as we went around putting that process and the systems in place. Uh, can I say I have been actually quite pleasantly um, surprised. Um, I've, I've been very happy, I should say, with the way that the glass rules have been implemented. Uh, as a responsible minister, you always worry when a government's going to introduce new systems and new processes. You as think, quick what, as you did. What, what could go wrong? You think about systems um, crashing or being corrupted or not being user-friendly. Uh, you know, broadly speaking, the systems around the licences and declarations have worked very well and it gives me a lot of confidence as we head into the next sets of rules, mm. uh, which, as you know, pertain to some much um, bigger quantities of materials around mixed plastics and whole tyres uh, and ones where the export quantities are very significant when you compare them to, a to Australia's total waste streams in, for those materials. Um, so while the quantities involved in glass might not have necessarily um, changed the world in terms of domestic investment and facilities and infrastructure, what I can already say hand on heart is that uh, the upcoming rules for plastics uh, and a, an exposure draft will be released on that very, very soon, that is already driving investment decisions. Uh, there are already announcements being made for new facilities and infrastructure in Australia, um, and there are a number of proposals also on the table where companies are looking to utilise the Recycling Modernisation Fund or other funding on offer, and those companies tell me that one of the key factors behind their decision to bring forwards these investments or to make these investments has been the policy guidance that's been added by the federal government around these waste export bans. Industry's always called for that over the years. You've got to have policy certainty, you've got to have stability for it so you know where you're going. No one's going to invest tens of millions of dollars without understanding that certainty. So I think those bans or that, that decision point has certainly encapsulated that. Since we last spoke, we've had Northern Territory... ACT, Queensland, WA, and shortly Tasmania are about to go to state elections. That provides challenges when you've got a national policy in place and then you get newly elected governments, be they be returned governments, but you get new ministers, new different relationships you have to build upon, etc. It was clearly evident through the development of the legislation and the National Waste Action Plan that there was a really quite a partisan. It was a, it was a genuine... There might have been some uh, rough and tumble in the meeting room, but generally everyone was on the same bus heading in the same direction. Are the relationships the same or, the, or, the, or have we now got some speed bumps, do you think? Uh, I think that certainly ministers will um, come and go in every area of policy. Uh, I think we're very lucky when it comes to policy making around waste reduction and recycling that... Broadly speaking, all governments are leaning in the same direction. These topics don't attract some of the same hyperpartisanship uh, and don't confront some of the same legacy issues yeah. as some old chestnut nuts do in the old COAG <laughs> policy making space. Sure. I mean, think, think about yeah. what we've managed to achieve over the last year or and a half or so. Um, we managed to get all of the governments to the table to agree on the national waste policy and the action plan that underpins it with some pretty big and ambitious targets uh, underneath that, or all of Australia's. Uh, governments have signed up to that. Uh, and then through the National Cabinet 
process and the um, uh, environment minister's meeting, uh, we managed to get that unanimous agreement once more, um, both around the design and the implementation of the waste export bans, but also to the co-investment model that underpins the Recycling Modernisation Fund. So what that means, you know, since since we last spoke when I think the Recycling Modernisation Fund had been announced officially, uh, we can now um, point to close to $1 billion worth of investments in new recycling facilities in Australia that are being underpinned by dollar-for-dollar matched funding um, by the Commonwealth and by the states and territories and more than a dollar of matched funding from industry. And, and so... They're historical my, numbers, aren't they? Well, I mean, this, they really are. These are huge numbers. These yeah. are absolutely... Uh, huge numbers. And look, um, that figure doesn't solve every um, waste challenge that we have in the country, but it's certainly a very, very good start to see investment figures like that coming forwards and Australia getting the facilities and the infrastructure that it that it genuinely needs in each state and territory for us to be able to uh, receive and sort and process our own waste streams, turn them back into commodities, realise the value in them and underpin a better manufacturing future for our country. So the RMF, um, it's in place. It's the most transformational piece of um, commitment by government, I think, in, in, in many, many years. In terms of the dollars that are being put around, who, I guess, um, who's doing best and who could do better? Are you talking about between the different states? Yes, or? I'm talking about, you know, I mean, there's a lot of talk and you, you see the different um, amounts being thrown around and they're different scale of projects too, but there are, you know, there are challenges with some of the states, aren't there? Because I guess the early movers control or, or not so much control, but the earliest get access to materials the later people that drag the chain don't get the same sort of access to material chains. We had to be very um, careful as a federal government going into these negotiations that we didn't just um, arrive at figures for each jurisdiction without considering what the national context overall looked like when you took into account each of those arrangements. Uh, Yes, we've entered bilateral agreements with each of the states and territories. Um, But I would say fundamentally um, the following is is true. Um, The states with the largest populations and the largest waste challenges by virtue of that certainly have the most significant funding on offer, both from themselves and and matched by the federal government's um, contribution. But um, there are also a number of states that have very unique and particular challenges. And so it wouldn't be quite fair to compare results just on a per capita basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I are currently sitting here in Queensland and I'd note that states like um, Queensland and West Australia have fairly dispersed populations um, outside of their we'll, we'll capital cities. We'll get on to that shortly because I want to talk about the remote and regional. Yeah, and that's, and that's another factor that I would, that I would point to. Uh, the other factor that's necessary to point out uh, at this point would probably be that West Australia is quite divorced from the eastern seaboard's marketplace when it comes to us trying to consider some of these waste streams as valuable commodities. Uh, And so, in a way, um, Western Australia needed its own consideration, including some outcomes um, at scale that probably couldn't be considered in the same way on the eastern seaboard where we um, can achieve some outcomes um, at scale in, in quite a different way. All of these factors were taken into account. And so I think what observers we'll see is that while each of the states certainly came to us with very different propositions around what they wanted to see, uh, we have broadly 
speaking, been able to achieve a national result, um, which um, pays heed both to the size of population and problems, but also some of the extra challenging um, uh, components that you'd add on top of just population size. That was not sort of the answer I was expecting, but thank you. It was, uh, uh, but I agree. I've, I've put some context to the whole process. So you, you're not going to give me a better and best then. <laughs> well, I, I, um, how about I say this? Um, the, the states and territories are um, at very different stages in yeah. terms of their policy development. There were um, some states, and I think everybody would recognise a state like South Australia with its early adoption of container deposit schemes, its early adoption of laws surrounding plastic bags, it's already had the emphasis on um, the plastic supply chain. There are states like that that were very able to almost slide over a Straight list of their it. expectations immediately. Uh, and there were some other jurisdictions that um, uh, had to do a bit of research in terms of where ultimately they wanted to go with um, with co-funding from the federal government. Uh, at this point in time, I, I, you know, I'm trying very much to keep in the spirit of uh, bipartisanship, which I talked about before. <laughs> I, I would just note that there is one major state, and that's this one here in Queensland that we're looking at, which um, have not yet signed their national partnership agreement. And what that means is that um, the state potentially does um, miss out on some of the deals or some of the arrangements yes. or some of the proposals that might be on offer to the state that might um, get preferential treatment by earlier adopters in other states. Well, business will go with those that are actually willing to put the dollars up there straight away. So there is that lost economic opportunity if you're dragging the chain. That's a, it's, it's a fact of life. It is. Um, we both had a bit of a chuckle around data and you being the economist and the businessman and, and you like looking at numbers. Um, Really, I mean, the reality is we do not have harmonisation of definitions still, and that has been the chestnut for all. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't measure an apple with an orange. Um, how do we and how far closer are we any closer with getting harmonisation with definitions, which in turn will lead to more accurate data and therefore more accurate decision-making processes? Uh, well, I'm very pleased to say that since the last time we chatted, we are a few significant steps closer. Um, Please enlighten uh, me. Uh, after we chatted last time, I think it was a late budget last year because of COVID. It would have been a couple of months after we chatted. Uh, in the uh, budget speech given by the Treasurer, he identified close to $60 million uh, that the federal government had committed towards um, the federal or the Commonwealth government's mm -hmm. um, commitments and actions under the National Waste Policy Action Plan. Um, that included a um, great number of actions, of course, but a significant portion of that funding was put aside for a national data um, tracking and visualisation tool, which is under development right now. Uh, the Commonwealth Government's doing some quite detailed engagement with different stakeholders at the moment, uh, just to uh, really analyse what potential data sources and sets are out there, uh, as well as the different ways in which it would be helpful to release that data. Uh, in, in short, uh, we are going to be publishing as much as we possibly can from every source that we can possibly compile it from. Um, as we discussed last time, this this data is critical, not just not just from a policy making perspective, in terms of informing good policy decisions from myself and other governments going forwards. It's actually um, one of the key tools that we need to enable the innovation and the entrepreneurship that fundamentally is the only way we're going to solve some of these big waste challenges. Uh, I like to say that waste streams are as complicated as every product on every shelf and every input into every business sector out there. But the point is that's actually true. Mm. And 
Um, the only way that we're going to get those product by product, sector by sector, input by input solutions is to empower the product experts in those spaces to think about what solutions, what alternatives, what substitutes, what improvements there could be for each of those products and inputs. And fundamentally, people aren't going to see those business opportunities, and they are business opportunities as well as sustainability opportunities. They're not going to see them unless the data is there and you're able to sort through them and find them. So um, we're working very closely with stakeholders at the moment, and uh, what you'll see is us releasing the first Um, components of our visualisation platform very, very soon. Uh, Obviously, to the extent that the federal government has, um, to a limited degree, been able to draw upon different sources of data in recent years to create the National Waste Report, we're looking at how we can make that digital and how we can um, release it in a way that people can start to be informed by the longitudinal aspects of that data. You'll see that released very, very shortly and we'll be adding to it over time. Well, that's certainly, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very pleased, but I do wait with bated breath to see where we get. I'm more interested to know how we're going to get harmonisation, some of the oh, definitions. Yes. Because yes. Da- the, the definitions are fundamental to it. When we're actually talking municipal solid waste, we know what we're talking about in that space. Uh, no, that's a fair point. Um, I should also mention that one of the uh, agreements that we were able to reach with the, um, states and territories at the same time as we reached agreement around the Recycling Modernisation Fund and the and the waste export bans uh, was an agreement around the provision of data mm. um, in real time. Um, and then there is the, the piece of work that's required in relation to harmonisation. Um, uh, close observers will have noticed the question of harmonisation made another headline appearance in the National Plastics Plan yes, at is. the start of March. And specifically, we recommitted in the in the National Plastics Plan um, to achieving harmonisation, both in terms of at the curbside, so that's around bins and bins. colours and numbers and definitions, but fundamentally um, that is one of the big pieces in the harmonisation and data quest that we're on. Uh, And the other piece is around the work that's happening under the action plan around um, standards, both for um, MRFs, um, performance, and the um, standards that we're going to put about products as we go around commoditizing some of these waste streams. So we're at a point now um, in in the whole action plan that we've, we've really cemented the foundations. We've got some pretty clear fundamentals in place. With export bans, with legislation, we've got a lot of the schemes in place. Um, we did discuss previously, and we've touched upon it before, about um, regional and big city. So we've gone from the big picture down into what Australia is demographically challenged, as we all know. Very, very different, diverse. Half this state is is out in the, out in the sticks. And we hear constantly that, uh, you know, that, that works okay in the big city, but what about us in regional and remote? Um, you recently launched and funded the product stewardship, the centre of excellence, that big picture stuff, um, and handed over millions to initiate new schemes. What are you trying to achieve there? And, and in terms of um, the, uh, the future of product stewardship, where to next with all of that? With the programs are all sort of staged over the next three, four, five years. How does government then say, 
okay, tick, 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 and let these industries move on with their product stewardship? You know, what's the parameters, the relationship with the product stewardship centre of excellence and these scheme operators themselves? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I guess the first thing to say is that the laws that we passed through the parliament last year really do deliberately put product stewardship at the heart of the federal government's policy approach um, to waste reduction and better recycling. Uh, this is all about what I um, uh, referred to before in terms of waste streams potentially being as complex as every product and every input into um, industries. Um, when I think about all of the reform journeys I've been on with governments before, you do um, gain uh, a very realistic and pragmatic set of expectations around what a central government in Canberra is realistically able to achieve. Mm -hmm. And I know that if I pretended to you or the public that a um, federal team in Canberra was going to be able to play matchmaker and find the perfect solution for every um, plastic straw, for every um, chemical input into an industrial process, for every piece of packaging on every shelf, um, that would be an unrealistic expectation. And so for me, it's about what are the tools that I can use to empower the experts and the people who own and are responsible for products and how can I get them to step up to the plate to take more responsibility for what happens to their products and their um, packaging and so on at the end of the um, you know, first life of yeah. those resources. Product stewardship is one of the keys. Here. Product stewardship is all around how can you set up a structure, a, um, an ecosystem of policies and laws that help industries together get around some of the competition issues and so forth that they might otherwise face to work together to put new recycling schemes in place where appropriate for their the products or the resources that underpin them. That's a journey. And um, uh, there are different product stewardship schemes in Australia that are at different points of the journey. And there are some, and I'll, I'll come back to your point around the importance of outcomes for regional and rural Australia as well as city areas. Uh, uh, the reason I make mention of that, Trevor, is the fact that we've seen with these product stewardship schemes, they work well in major urban mm. areas, mm. but they fall down very, very badly when we get into regional and remote. And we've seen that, you know, in my nearly 40 years' experience, We've seen that I think probably the most successful is a regulated scheme mm -hmm. in, in uh, the oil scheme, whereas the non-regulated, the more, oh, look, trust us, we'll do the good thing, regional and remote falls off the, off the radar. And, it, and they have the same material streams as big city. Uh, I understand what you're saying, and it very much depends on the scheme in question, um, its stage of development, but also the product in question. So you're right, there are some um, regulated um, schemes such as um, the product stewardship scheme for oil, yes. uh, which has very clear um, equal service obligations mm. in country areas as well as in the cities, and, and that's fantastic. And it works um, very effectively. Uh, similarly, the um, NTCRS. Um, has a slightly different approach um, to the provision of regional and rural services, and um, it, it does um, achieve a fair bit, but it's, it's uh, you know, something where we can always do better. It has weaknesses, uh, yes. I, I would point out as well, um, there are some products that naturally don't have the same um, difficulties around their recovery as others. So Mobile Muster Scheme, for instance, has a fantastic option for regional and remote people to um, post um, their old phones back into a collection point. And that's possible because of the sheer value of the resources in a phone and their small size. So it's going to work for some and not as easily for others. Let's talk about something like tyres, uh, which is one of the other examples we'll talk about. There's been a product stewardship scheme um, for tyres around for some time. And I think people that have been involved in that journey would say that that scheme has grown up to a certain point. 
And up until last year, when we passed our new laws, uh, they had probably reached a bit of an impasse in terms of their coverage, both amongst the industry itself, but also the extent to which they were able to um, fulfill recovery in regional and remote areas. So the new laws that we've passed um, give a scheme like Tire Stewardship Australia a few extra options. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, we announced that under the new laws, they had sought and achieved accreditation by the federal government. So that product stewardship scheme is now accredited. And that means the federal government has gone through that scheme and we've satisfied ourselves as to its governance and its institutions. And that um, uh, leads to the federal government being able to utilise some new powers that we introduced into the product stewardship laws last year. One of those powers is that a minister can now be more proactive in terms of um, chasing up any free riding issues that a scheme like that has. And that will help to expand the close coverage the, of that scheme. It close the gaps in the process, yes. And it helps it, I guess, to get the sort of coverage and the industry buy-in that lets it more easily leverage itself into regional and rural areas. The other thing we announced at the same time as the accreditation of that scheme was some extra seed funding for that scheme to um, uh, increase or expand its scope into two new areas, mining tyres and the conveyor belts out of mining facilities. And so you can see there that the federal government is willing to invest and that that scheme as it expands in its scope is naturally then um, increasing its scope in a place that will more naturally take it into more so regional we move into remote areas. So broader rubber, I should yeah, Well, exactly. And, and the point that I'd make is its logistics chain will now be extending into the parts of the country where it didn't previously. Yes. And that creates synergies. With the other materials. With the other material streams. And we're seeing that actually in the Northern Territory where there's some research being done at the moment exactly in that space. Yeah. But I guess from the product stewardship point of view, we, we need to make sure that I think, what is it, 10 or 12, uh, whatever it is, new ones coming in. I think we need to, from a policy perspective, we really need to say now, well, how do we make it more equ socially equitable um, so that the people that are out there in Catherine or out there in Dampier or, or even Mount Isa are getting access because I guess the national policy schemes put a they put an, an overarching direction for state and then state by next on the on the cascading whatever we do in Canberra in policy terms will impact those remote and regional areas. Yeah, can I, can I make a couple of very quick points here? Yes, please. The, the really interesting thing about product stewardship schemes is the opportunity that we might realise soon as more truly national schemes come to fruition mm. to achieve synergies in the reverse logistics. Yes. Okay, so to the extent that there are already trucks or logistics chains heading into regional towns um, for something like the collection of e-waste under mm -hmm. the NTCRS, you can understand that it probably doesn't take too many other viable product stewardship schemes to exist in that truly national sense before all of a sudden you could end up with shared logistics chains that start to pick up all sorts of other things that yeah. might not stack up in regional and rural areas on their own bat, but would certainly stack up Leverage. if they're leveraging off existing logistics chains that exist for stronger schemes. Hence the Product Stewardship Centre of Excellence will look at those sorts of initiatives. Exactly. It's about getting the people behind some of our great and very successful product stewardship mm. schemes that already exist to start to, to start to talk to each other and share their experiences and find these sorts of synergies. The other thing that I'll just mention very, very quickly is there is a top-down approach in terms of um, national product stewardship schemes and their growth, but there's also a bottom-up approach which potentially lets us start to look at what um, what changes we could make in individual regions of a high priority. 
So at the same time as all of this has been going on, the federal government gave uh, some funding to the RDA that represents um, far north Queensland from Cairns right up to the tip of the Cape York and the Torres Strait. Uh, we picked that region for this trial very deliberately because not only is there a um, you know, fairly significant city um, being Cairns that underpins that region, but you also then have a series of much smaller um, country towns, agricultural regions, some remote uh, Indigenous uh, communities and also some offshore islands. And so it seemed like a really great place to do this first scoping study. And the purpose of that scoping study, which is very much being driven by my colleague uh, Warren Inch, who's the member for Leichhardt and also the special envoy for the Great Barrier Reef, um, that was about taking a regional planning approach to see, in this case for plastics, what sorts of um, capacity might be able to be achieved in collection chains when you consider that region as a whole. Um, they haven't yet published their final report, um, but I know they've been working very hard on it. And I think that that could potentially be a model for federal governments to look at into the future, how an RDA or some other regional development um, uh, kind of focus could be put around supply chains and logistics chains to make industry stack up um, where it wouldn't automatically otherwise. So we broadened the stakeholder group outside of the waste and recycling through traditional councils and local state government to much broader business. Precisely. Yeah. Trevor, moving on from product stewardship, um, the modern manufacturing strategy, um, that was another, another part of the government that actually aligned with the national policy, et cetera. The background to that? Uh, it, it's an incredibly important um, partnership really between two different areas of policy where there's this beautiful synergy that's going to uh, come about. So the modern manufacturing strategy was a key plank of October's budget. Um, the government has put significant money aside for co-funding new manufacturing investments, very much along the lines of the Recycling Modernisation Fund actually. Yes. And what we've done is identify as a government six priority areas where we believe Australia has a potential strength or competitive advantage for future manufacturing. And the really uh, incredible thing is that recycling is one of those six priority areas. And interestingly, um, agricultural food is a second one. So if you're working in the area of resource recovery in the food or organics chain, you actually tick two of the six boxes. And so what we're going to see is a roadmap released very soon for recycling uh, manufacturing or remanufacturing, along with um, further information around future funding streams. And uh, basically, this is the next step after the Recycling Modernisation Fund to say, as we see the circular economy come about, what does that mean? It means more self-sufficiency and self-reliance for a country like Australia, incredibly important, as we've come to realise over the, the course of the last year. And the government is flagging that in these priority areas like recycling, uh, if business is looking to make investments, the federal government will co-invest in that alongside them. And so, um, for instance, a lot of the sorts of proposals that have been put into the Recycling Modernisation Fund um, grants that have been put out by states and territories, a lot of those applications would ver sit very neatly side by side with the modern manufacturing strategy of the government. So what we basically got now is a more whole of government approach and actually it's, it's that manufacturing linking with the resource recovery, linking with the strategy, linking with export bans, the package. Precisely, precisely. You think about how many businesses are actually required in the chain to bring about the circular economy that we want to see. You know, of course, it's one thing to be um, better recovering our waste streams. It's one thing to be um, sorting and processing 
um, those waste streams back into commodities like plastic pallets and, and resins and so on. The next point is what are the businesses locally that are going to be able to purchase off um, those providers? And so this is about plastics manufacturers. Um, this is about the manufacturers of all sorts of other products that can fundamentally be creating the demand side of the economy that we want to see around what used to be considered these waste streams. I gave you some homework last time. I'm going to give you some homework for the next one, and sure. that is on procurement. I think it's 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 absolutely fundamental that we should actually we have a look at where we really are as terms as procurement, not just talking the talk, but we walk the talk. So what would be interesting to see is, if, are there any first strikers within government that is actually jumping ahead of the game and actually looking at genuinely, not just talking about procurement, but actually doing something with recycling content really in the federal sense. I'm very, very happy to take that homework away. Uh, since we last met, uh, the federal government has changed the Commonwealth procurement policy I know um, to have. encourage the use of recycled content and sustainability in those considerations. But you're right, there is a bottom-up approach as well, which all governments... Um, have committed to, which is around identifying some iconic resource-intensive infrastructure projects around the country that we can use as flagships. And uh, my hope is that uh, in the months ahead, we'll also start to see uh, some of the uh, work finished around new standards and guidelines for the use of recycled content and infrastructure that the federal government's been investing in. So watch this space and hopefully next time we come together to talk, we can um, focus on the very important demand side and procurement. I think that's important. Trevor, thank you very much. Have a great Easter and all the best. Thanks, Rick. My thanks to John at Audio Advantage in the production of this podcast. And if you enjoyed this conversation, other episodes can be found on my website, thegarbologist.com.au forward slash podcasts.